Let us, as we continue in standing, turn to the last book in the Bible, Revelation chapter 8, is where we will be together this evening. We come to just the first five verses of Revelation 8 tonight. It will surely be the shortest chapter in any of our ensuing studies, Lord willing, until we get to the beginning of Revelation chapter 22. It's a rather simple text, but I trust that it will say much to us tonight. So let me read it for us, and then I pray for our time, and then we will begin to study it together. Let us hear now as Christ speaks to us once again through His perfect Word. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning. And an earthquake ascends the reading of God's word. Let us pray together once again. Father, we want to have a silent heart before you as you speak to us. As Christ reveals his word to us, we want to tremble with faith and fear. We want our offering of worship even this evening to arise as a pleasing fragrance unto you. Just as the prayers did in heaven so long ago in this text. Also, as we look into John's vision once again, we ask that you would help us by your Spirit to hear your word and keep it, that we might receive the promised blessing that you have given to us in this great book, and we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. One of the greatest popular historians of the 20th century was an Englishman named John Keegan. He wrote no small number of books on, on military history, and near the end of his career, he published a book that was called The Book of War, and the subtitle was 25 Centuries of Great War Writing. So essentially, he wanted to go through the history of military warfare and find these, these great selections that would demonstrate all of the energy, all of the suspense, all of the tragedy, all of the emotion that tends to go with, with war. And one of the chapters that he included in that volume came from a general during World War II. And this general was on the Atlantic seaboard on the eastern side, of course, of World War II. I'm sorry, the European theater side of World War II from 1943 to 1944. And it was a time, if you know anything about war in that theater during World War II, that there really wasn't much going on, militarily speaking. It was pretty much a dead zone when it came to military action. And so the author, this general, was remarking about how it was seemingly all around, quote, unnatural silence. But as every general at that point in the war knew on each side, certainly, that this unnatural silence was going to eventually lead to greater conflict. It was going to lead to increased action. It was going to lead to more lives being lost. So that's why they often took to calling it the calm before the storm. And tonight what we come to in Revelation chapter 8 is an unnatural silence. It's a hush that hovers over heaven as the seventh seal is finally opened. And what it leads to is not what we certainly would 
think by this point in John's vision. It leads to what we can rightly call the calm before what is definitely going to be the storm in verse 5, really through verse, or I'm sorry, the end of chapter 11. And so all we want to do tonight is notice the two main parts of the text. First, silence in heaven, and secondly, prayer in heaven. So first one, silence in heaven, then verses 2 through 5, prayer in heaven. It wasn't too long ago that I had pulled off of a shelf an old book on prayer that used to be relatively well-known in, in our circles, certainly at least 125 years ago. And I began to kind of thumb my way through this book, and I noticed how, how it had all this incredible, frankly, life-transforming truth on, on prayer, yet nobody knows about it anymore. And I found myself wishing that Christians and, and Christian ministers even would be able to, to reclaim this resource and, and retrieve its wonder and its usefulness. And there's a truth that Revelation 8, in a surprising way, might do that for some of you tonight in your own prayer life. Because in just the span of a few short verses, it packs an enormous amount of potentially life-changing truth when it comes to prayer as viewed from heaven. And how the angels around the throne lean in to listen to the prayers of God's people. But before we get to that prayer in heaven, we've got to deal with the silence in heaven. Look again at verse 1 as it begins. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal. So that's the timing of the text. Now, if you haven't been with us in Revelation, you need to know that these seven seals have occupied John's vision all the way back since chapter 5. It was there in chapter 5 that he was summoned through this doorway into heaven. And there he saw in the Father's right hand this scroll that was sealed with seven seals. And this thunderous cry went out, who's worthy to open the scroll? And this investigative search went out throughout the universe, and no one was found worthy. John falls down weeping, an elder reaches down and says, get up, look over there. Because Jesus Christ, depicted as a slaughtered lamb, he stands up. And if you remember that part of John's vision, he ascended to the throne there in heaven, and he took the book from the Father's hand. And this scroll that he took, uh, we've said before, it's a scroll that more or less contained the plans for the human history from that point forward. Certainly, the destiny of all humanity is written on that scroll. And if no one's going to be able to open it, salvation and vindication wouldn't come to God's people. The consummation of all things wouldn't happen. But Jesus begins to unseal that scroll, one seal at a time. And those seals... The first six were unlocked, broken in chapter 6. And the first four talked about the four horsemen of the apocalypse, this pestilence, this pain, these problems, the death that's going to come and has come certainly in the intervening centuries upon the earth. Scrolls, I'm sorry, seals 5 and 6 spoke ever more about other truth related to the age in which we live. And the sixth seal pictured... In John's first sweep through human history, his first vantage point and perspective through human history, seal 6 pictured the final judgment. Because it was there at the end of chapter 6 that the great powers of the earth rose up in, in the day of the Lamb's wrath. And they say, who can stand in the day of this wrath? And so what we've dealt with the last two weeks is frankly the answer to that question. Because chapter 7 says, here's who can stand in the day of God's wrath. It's only those who are sealed. Symbolically, the 144,000 representing all of God's people throughout the ages. Those who are saved in heaven, covered by the blood of the Lamb. It's only those who are sealed and saved that are going to be able to stand. And so, now we come to our verse, when the Lamb opens the seventh seal. And if you understand rightly that the sixth seal was about the final judgment, 
you should be expecting, shouldn't you, that when the seventh seal is going to be opened, what we're going to see, what John's going to see in his apocalypse is heaven finally ushered in. The new heavens and the new earth, kingdom rest, final glory, everlasting bliss. But actually when he opens this seventh seal, it doesn't announce anything. It doesn't say anything, does it? At least not initially. Notice first. One, as it continues, there was silence in heaven for a half an hour. Now, I'm sure that you know 30 minutes of silence is a very long time. To illustrate the degree to which 30 minutes of silence is a very long time. Now, let me tell you about a conversation I had probably only 18 months ago with our former associate pastor here, Mark Belanger. He used to often lead in our morning service the corporate confession of sin time, which is normally followed by the silent confession of sin. And he's up here leading you in that silent confession of sin. And he asked me uh, one day, you know, how long should I let the silent confession go? And I said, how long do you think you normally make it go? And he said, ah, probably about 25, 30 seconds. I said, yeah, that's probably about right. I said, because if you let it go much longer, you'd be surprised the number of people in the church that would tell you at the end of that service, what took you so long? And so I told him, if you just let it go 60 seconds, you'd be surprised how many people will tell you after the service, what took you so long? And so the next Sunday, if you know Mark, he let it go 60 seconds. And I was surprised how many people came up and said, what took him so long? Because 60 seconds, one minute of silence is a very long time. What about there around God's throne? 30 minutes, about a half an hour of silence. And you want to ask the question, don't you? Why? What's, what's the point of the silence? Well, you need to know, as we've mentioned many times in our study already of Revelation, that, that John's vocabulary, when he's putting into words what he's seeing, all the vocabulary comes from the Old Testament. These words, these phrases, these images that's just collected in his biblically informed imagination. So what you see in the Old Testament, there's a number of reasons silence comes uh, the most prominent of which is a silence that falls before judgment. So think of a text like Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 20. God is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Or Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 7. Be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. Or how about a verse that many of you might know, Psalm 46, verse 10. Be still and know that I am God. A verse that's certainly written across no small number of coffee cups and posters and on journals. But if you know the context there of Psalm 46, it's actually about a stillness and silence before vengeance comes upon the nations. So that's certainly in play here. I actually think there's a useful thing for us to remember. Kids, you might remember when Joshua marched around Jericho. That silent march is what began that great defeat of Jericho, and it was after the days of silence that the trumpet sounded and then the judgment came. And that's certainly important because what we're going to see is after the silence, trumpets are going to come in the ensuing verses, and those trumpets are going to bring judgment. But, but there is a more pointed purpose, I think, for the silence here. It's the silence that we see leading to what we're told in verses 2 through 5, these prayers in heaven almost as though, as John is telling us, the silence in heaven is necessary that they might hear the prayer in heaven. And before we move into that second section, I do hope you know and have maybe even considered in your own life before how much we may have lost in our own time and context because we have become rather unaccustomed to long periods of silence and solitude in our life. 
Don't you know that it's in those times of silence and solitude, more often than not, that God seems to speak with thunderous power into your own heart, the Spirit convicting you of sin and leading you to Jesus Christ. It's silence there in heaven, certainly preparing them for the judgment about to be unleashed through these trumpets, but silence now that leads to prayer in heaven. Notice verse 2. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. So what you're getting ready to see is another series of sevens in Revelation. A series of seven just shows up all over the place. We've seen a series of seven letters to seven churches. We've seen the seven seals, which represented John's kind of first pass, we've said, through human history, his first vantage point on church history. And now these seven trumpets are going to unleash yet another vantage point and perspective on human history. But before you get to those trumpets, what we're told in verse 3 is that prayer comes. Another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer. Now you need to know that many people throughout the ages have wondered the identity about this angel. You might not be surprised that many people throughout church history have thought that this is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. That he is the angel. He is that divine messenger coming to present and purify his his people's prayers. I think it's actually just a uniquely commissioned heavenly angelic messenger bringing those prayers for the lamb himself has already been mentioned in verse 1. But you want to pay attention to what is in the angel's hand, a golden censer. So kids, you need to think about me with me for a second about this censer. I doubt you've probably ever held a censer. You've probably not observed a censer in worship, certainly not in our Presbyterian tradition. And what you would have found, they would have been used in the Old Testament tabernacle and temple, the priestly Levitical system. Think of a golden globe-like structure. And it would be in that structure that you would burn incense. And then there would be kind of openings, often rather ornate, from which this incense smoke would pour forth. And you'd have it connected with this golden chain. And normally a priest or a servant would, would walk through that heavenly dwelling place of God, swinging this censer in order to make sure that everything was smelling spiritually as it should. Uh, The most pointed thing that you need to know is that on the Day of Atonement, Leviticus 16 tells us that the high priest would enter in behind the veil and he'd be swinging a censer because that pleasant-smelling smoke needed to cover the mercy seat lest God's judgment break out upon him. And we've already seen... uh, A censer, in many ways, mentioned certainly this incense has already showed up in chapter 5, verse 8. And it was there in chapter 5, verse 8, that we were told this golden bowl of incense was none other than the prayers of God's people. And here we see that link once again. Notice how the text continues. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. So all I want to do in the time remaining in these verses is simply point out a few truths that our text is telling us about prayer. Uh, The first of which is the unity of prayer. The unity of prayer. Some people have said, based on verse 3 in correspondence with chapter 5, verse 8, that the incense is the prayer or the prayer is the incense. Uh, But certainly it does seem here, if you just kind of read the passage, it makes a distinction between the two. And I think what it's trying to illustrate for us is that there is a genuine unity in the worship in heaven and the worship there on earth. There's a genuine unity in the prayers that are offered from God's people because it's underscoring, isn't it, not just the unity but the universality of prayer. This is from all the saints 
presented there before the throne. So there's a unity in the prayer of God's people as viewed from the eyes of heaven. Number two, what you want to see is the acceptability of prayer. Verse 4 continues, And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. David in Psalm 141 verse 2 says, let my prayers come to you as the evening incense. It's this idea, students, of this pleasing aroma that is coming up to God's heavenly dwelling place. A pleasing aroma that causes him to respond with mercy and in grace and power. And that language here is used, is certainly echoing it in verse 4, this idea that the prayers of the saints are rising before God. That they're acceptable before God. I do hope you know that prayer that's offered through faith and in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ is acceptable before God. Using the language of the Old Testament, it's a pleasing aroma before God. So pleasing, in fact, that it seems like all the business of heaven stops for 30 minutes because everyone in heaven wants to hear those prayers So acceptable they are. But what maybe is more striking to you when you think about the acceptability of prayer in this passage is that it seems like the content of the saint's prayer is none other than the content of crying out for vengeance and judgment. Uh, We saw in the fifth seal, chapter 6, verse 9 and 10, these martyrs that were underneath the altar pictured here. And they were crying out to God, How long, O Lord, before you essentially send your son back and judge the earth? And what you're going to see in verse 5 and continuing into the seven trumpets is that the seven trumpets, these trumpets of judgment, it's an answer to the prayers of God's people. And those prayers clearly were prayers of judgment. So have you ever wrestled with that in your own life and Christian experience? You read these psalms, don't you? Imprecations, cries of judgment, cries for vengeance upon God's enemies. And sometimes you may think, well, you know, that, that certainly makes sense in Old Testament revelation. But, you know, New Testament, we don't see that in the same way. In the New Testament, certainly our prayers are to sound a little bit different. And we don't have the time to go into a long application on this. But I just give you one text to help you understand that actually prayers of judgment are much more common in the New Testament than you would realize. Just take the example of praying Apostle Paul. You know, no one's prayers in Scripture outside of the Psalms so shape the Christian life as Paul's do. And just take this text at the end of 1 Corinthians. So 1 Corinthians 16, verse 22 and 23. Two of the last three verses in the letter. He says in verse 22, If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. That's a prayer of judgment. If anyone has no love for God, let him be accursed. And what comes next in Paul's mind? The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. I'm not sure that we've always reckoned rightly with a holy awareness of God's righteousness and justice on the earth. When was the last time you prayed for Christ's kingdom to come? If you were with us this morning, you did that in the Lord's Prayer. You know that that is a prayer of judgment. We're asking in that prayer for God to tear down every kingdom that is not of his in this world. So you want to see the unity of prayer. You want to see the acceptability of prayer. And then you want to see, fifthly, the efficacy of prayer. Notice verse 5. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. 
And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. About five years ago, I had a few friends in seminary that were telling me I needed to read the books of Eugene Peterson. For the generation above mine, Eugene Peterson was, I think you can say this, undoubtedly the most influential Presbyterian pastor, and some might argue the most influential pastor in the late 20th century in America. And part of his influence just became or came through his wonderful writings. And so at the prodding of my friends, I began to kind of dip my toe into the world of Eugene Peterson. And eventually I came across this 1988 title. It was a book that he wrote on Revelation, essentially his meditation on Revelation applied to the Christian life. And the title of that book is Reversed Thunder. And the title comes from chapter 8, verse 5 of Revelation. Because what he's saying there, you notice with this censer, the angel is bringing the prayers of the saints, these thunderous prayers of the saints to the throne room of God. And then the angel then likewise, when those prayers are answered, is now going to hurl that censer down to earth in thunderous anger and righteousness from God. These thunderous prayers that ascended to the throne are now going to generate this thunderous descent from the throne. And if you've ever wondered if your prayers are actually heard, if your prayers are powerful, if your prayers are effective, you need only look to Revelation chapter 8, because it's here that prayer moves the hand of the sovereign God to bring about His judgments upon the earth. If you ever doubt the efficacy of prayer, just look to the reversed thunder of Revelation 8 verse 5. So you have the unity, the acceptability, the efficacy. But let me give you one more as we close. One more point about prayer from our simple passage. The primacy of prayer. The primacy of prayer. It's prayer that causes the angels to lean in with eager interest. Consider John's original audience for this apocalypse. Christians in a persecuted environment. Christians very much in the minority in the Roman Empire. Christians who had no money. Christians who had no influence. Christians who had no prestige. Christians who had no power. Christians who had no rights. Christians who had no votes. And in the midst of all of their affliction, trials, troubles, and hardship, you might ask, what did they have? And I'm sure if you asked any a godly saint at that time in the first century, they'd say, oh, we have everything because we have prayer. Prayer is the weapon that shakes the world. Prayer is the weapon that silences heaven. So isn't it true that in many a person's prayer closet, what you're actually experiencing is little more than a true calm before the storm of those answered prayers? Let's pray together. Father, we do ask that you would help us by your mercy and grace to be silent before you, that we might have a picture of your holiness, your righteousness, your splendor and your majesty that would lead us to quiet our hearts regularly before you, but also to open our hearts before you in prayer. We rejoice that you listen to the prayers of your people, that you delight to answer them and answer them in the most moving, mysterious, and magnificent of ways. 
sending your plans, even your judgments upon the earth. Father, we ask that you would do us great good as we want to grow in our own prayer life. Do us great good as we want to ever gaze upon Jesus Christ, the slaughtered lamb who is at your right hand. And we pray these things in his precious name. Amen.